Book Six, Part Two of the Works of Tacitus, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kalinda. The Works of Tacitus, Volume Two. Translated, edited, and with essays by Thomas Gordon. Book Six, A.D. 32 to 37, Part Two. Tiberius and Caligula. About the same time, Claudia, daughter to Marcus Silanus, was given in marriage to Caligula, who had accompanied his grandfather to Capria, having always hid, under a subdolous guise of modesty, his savage and inhuman spirit, even upon the condemnation of his mother, even for the exile of his brothers, not a word escaped him, not a sigh nor groan. He was so blindly observant of Tiberius that he studied the bent of his temper and seemed to possess it, practiced his looks, imitated the change and fashion of his dress, and affected his words and manner of expression. Hence the observation of Passienus, the orator, grew afterwards famous, that there never lived a better slave nor a worse master. Neither would I omit the presage of Tiberius concerning Galba, then consul. Having sent for him, and sifted him upon several subjects, he at last told him, in Greek, And thou, Galba, shalt hereafter taste of empire, signifying his late and short sovereignty. Then he uttered from his skill in astrology, which at Rhodes he had leisure to learn, and had Thrasellus for his teacher, whose capacity he proved by this following trial. As often as he consulted this way concerning any affair, he retired to the roof of the house, attended by one freedman trusted with the secret. This man, strong of body but destitute of letters, guided along the astrologer, whose art Tiberius meant to try, over solitary precipices, for upon a rock the house stood, and as he returned, if any suspicion arose that his predictions were vain, or that the author designed fraud, cast him headlong into the sea, to prevent his making discoveries. Thrasellus being therefore led over the same rocks, and minutely consulted, his answers were full, and struck Tiberius, as approaching empire and many future revolutions were specifically foretold him. The artist was then questioned, whether he had calculated his own nativity, and thence presaged what was to befall him that same year, nay, that very day. Thrasellus surveying the positions of the stars, and calculating their aspects, began at first to hesitate, then to quake, and the more he meditated, being more and more dismayed with wonder and dread, he at last cried out that over him just then hung a boding danger and well-nigh fatal. Forthwith Tiberius embraced him, congratulated him upon his foresight of perils and his security from them, and esteeming his predictions as so many oracles, held him thenceforward in the rank of his most intimate friends. For myself, while I listen to these and the like relations, my judgment wavers, whether things human are in their course and rotation determined by fate and immutable necessity, or left to roll at random. For upon this subject the wisest of the ancients, and those addicted to their sects, are of opposite sentiments. Many are of opinion that to the gods neither the generation of us men, nor our death, and in truth neither men nor the actions of men, are of any importance or concernment 
and thence such numberless calamities afflict the upright, while pleasure and prosperity surround the wicked. Others hold the contrary position, and believe a fate to preside over events, a fate, however, not resulting from wandering stars, but coeval with the first principles of things, and operating by the continued connection of natural causes. Yet their philosophy leaves out course of life in our own free option, but that after the choice is made, the chain of consequences is inevitable. Neither is that good or evil which passes for such in the estimation of the vulgar. Many who seem wounded with adversity are yet happy. Numbers that wallow in wealth are yet most wretched, since the first often bear with magnanimity the blows of fortune, and the latter abuse her bounty in baneful pursuits. For the rest, it is common to multitudes of men to have each their whole future fortunes determined from the moment of their birth, or if some events thwart the prediction, it is through the mistakes of such as pronounce at random, and thence debase the credit of an art, which, both in ages past and our own, hath given signal instances of its certainty. For, to avoid lengthening this discretion, I shall remember in its order how, by the son of this same Thrasellus, the empire was predicted to Nero. During the same consulship was divulged the death of Asinius Gallus. That he perished through famine was undoubted, but whether of his own accord or by constraint was held uncertain. The pleasure of the emperor being consulted, whether he would suffer him to be buried, he was not ashamed to grant such a piece of mock mercy, nor even to blame the anticipations of casualty, which had withdrawn the criminal before he was publicly convicted as if during three intermediate years between his accusation and his death there wanted time for the trial of an ancient consular and the father of so many consulars next perished drusus condemned by his grandfather to be starved but by gnawing the weeds upon which he lay he by that miserable nourishment protracted life the space of nine days some authors relate that in case Sejanus had resisted and taken arms, Macro had instructions to draw this young man out of confinement, for he was kept in the palace, and set him at the head of the people. Afterwards, because a report ran that the emperor was about to be reconciled to his daughter-in-law and grandson, he chose rather to gratify himself by cruelty than the public by relenting. Tiberius not satiated with the death of Drusus, even after death pursued him with cruel invectives, and, in a letter to the Senate, charged him with a body foul with prostitution, with a spirit breathing destruction to his own family and rage against the Republic, and ordered to be recited the minutes of his words and actions which had been long and daily registered. A proceeding more black with horror could not be devised, that for so many years there should be those expressly appointed who were to note down his looks, his groans, his secret and extorted murmurs, that his grandfather should delight to hear the treacherous detail, to read it, and to the public expose it, would appear a series of fraud, meanness, and amazement beyond all measure of faith, were it not for the letters of Actius the Centurion and Didymus the Freedman, who in them declare, particularly, the names of the slaves set purposely to abuse and provoke Drusus, with the several parts they acted how one struck him going out of his chamber, and how another filled him with terrors and dismay. The centurion, too, repeated, as matter of glory, his own language to Drusus, full of outrage and barbarity, with the words uttered by him under the agonies of famine, that at first, feigning disorder of spirit, he ventured, in the style of a madman, dismal denunciations against Tiberius. 
but after all hopes of life had forsaken him, then, in steady and deliberate imprecations, he invoked the direful vengeance of the gods, that, as he had slaughtered his son's wife, slaughtered the son of his brother, and his son's sons, and with slaughters had filled the whole house, so they would, in justice to the ancestors of the slain, in justice to their posterity, doom him to the dreadful penalties of so many murders. The senators, in truth, upon this raised a mighty din, under color of detesting these imprecations. But it was dread which possessed them, and amazement, that he who had once been so dark in the practice of wickedness, and so subtle in the concealment of his bloody spirit, was arrived at such an utter insensibility of shame, that he could thus remove, as it were, the covert of the walls, and represent his own grandson under the ignominious chastisement of a centurion, torn by the barbarous stripes of slaves, and imploring in vain the last sustenance of life. Before the impressions of this grief were worn away, the death of Agrippina was published. I suppose she had lived thus long upon the hopes which from the execution of Sejanus she had conceived. But, feeling afterwards no relaxation of cruelty, death grew her choice. Unless perhaps she were bereaved of nourishment, and her decease feigned to have been of her own seeking. For Tiberius raged against her with abominable imputations, reproaching her with lewdness as the adulteress of Asinius Gallus, and that upon his death she became weary of life. But these were none of her crimes. Agrippina, impatient of an equal lot, and eager for rule, had thence sacrificed to masculine ambition all the passions and vices of women. The emperor added that she departed the same day on which Sejanus had suffered as a traitor two years before and that the same ought to be perpetuated by a public memorial. Nay, he boasted of his clemency, in that she had not been strangled and her body cast into the charnel of malefactors. For this, as for an instance of mercy, the Senate solemnly thanked him, and decreed that on the seventeenth of October, the day of both their deaths, a yearly offering should be consecrated to Jupiter for ever. Not long after, Cocaeus Nerva, in full prosperity of fortune, in perfect vigor of body, formed a purpose of dying. As he was the incessant companion of the prince, and accomplished in the knowledge of all laws, divine and human, Tiberius, having learned his design, was earnest to dissuade him, examined his motives, joined entreaties, and even declared how grievous to his own spirit it would prove, how grievous to his reputation, if the nearest of his friends should relinquish life, without any cause for dying. Nerva rejected his reasoning, and completed his purpose by abstinence. It was alleged by such as knew his thoughts that the more he saw into the dreadful source and the increase of public miseries, the more transported with indignation and fear, he resolved to make an honest end, in the bloom of his integrity, before his life and credit were assaulted. Moreover, the fall of Agrippina, by a reverse hardly credible, procured that of Plancina, she was formerly married to Cnaeus Piso, and though she exulted publicly for the death of Germanicus, yet, when Piso fell, she was protected by the solicitations of Augusta, nor less by the known animosity of Agrippina. But as favor and hate were now withdrawn, justice prevailed, and being questioned for crimes long since sufficiently manifest, she executed with her own hand that vengeance which was rather too slow than too severe. While the city yet bewailed so many tragical deaths, 
It was an accession to the public affliction that Julia, the daughter of Drusus, and lately the wife of Nero, was espoused to Rebellius Blandus, whose grandfather was remembered by many to have been only a Roman knight from Tiber. At the issue of the year happened the death of Aelius Lamia, and was celebrated with a public funeral. For his last employment he was governor of Rome. Having been at length discharged from the mock administration of Syria, which he was never suffered to visit. In his descent he was noble, enjoyed a lively old age, and upon his character was derived fresh glory from the withholding of his province from him. As Pomponius Flaccus, propraetor of Syria, died some time after, there arrived letters from Tiberius. In them he complained that all the senators of distinguished name and qualified to command armies refused that office. Hence he was reduced to the necessity of entreaties, to engage some of the consulars to undertake the rule of provinces. He thought fit to forget Aruntius, governor of Spain, already for ten years detained at Rome. The same year also died Marcus Lepidus, of whose wisdom and moderation I have in the former books inserted abundant instances. Nor does it require more room here to display his nobility, since his race was that of Emilii, a race fertile in good citizens, and even those of the same family who lapsed into corruption, continued still to be distinguished by their illustrious dignities and fortune. In the consulship of Paulus Fabius and Lucius Vitellius, after a long vicissitude of ages, the phoenix arrived in Egypt, and furnished the most learned of the natives and Greeks with matter of large and various observations concerning that miraculous bird. The circumstances in which they agree, with many others, that however disputed deserve to be known, claim a recital here. That it is a creature sacred to the sun, and in the fashion of its head and diversity of feathers, distinct from other birds, all who have described its figure are agreed. About the length of its life relations vary. It is by the vulgar tradition fixed at five hundred years, but there are those who extend it to one thousand four hundred and sixty-one and assert that the three former phoenixes appeared in reigns greatly distant, the first under Sesostris, the next under Amasis, and that one was seen under Ptolemy the third king of Egypt of the Macedonian race, and flew to the city of Heliopolis, accompanied by a vast host of other birds gazing upon the wonderful stranger. But these are, in truth, the obscure accounts of antiquity. Between Ptolemy and Tiberius the interval was shorter, not two hundred and fifty years, Hence, some have believed that the present was a spurious phoenix, and derived not its origin from the territories of Arabia, since it observed nothing of the instinct which ancient tradition attributes to the genuine, for that the latter, having completed its course of years, just before its death, builds a nest in its native land, and upon it sheds a generative power, from whence arises a young one, whose first care, when he is grown, is to bury his father. Neither does he undertake it unadvisedly, but by collecting and fetching loads of myrrh, tries his strength in great journeys, and as soon as he finds himself equal to the burden and fit for the long flight, he rears upon his back his father's body, carries it quite to the altar of the sun, and then flies away. These are uncertain tales, and their uncertainty heightened by fables, but that this bird has been sometimes seen in Egypt is not questioned. At Rome, as the course of slaughter continued unrelenting, Pomponius Labeo, whom I have remembered to have been governor of Mosea, chose, by opening his veins, to let out his own blood. As, by his example, did his wife Paxia hers. 
Such efficacy had the terror of falling by the executioner, that to escape him deaths of this sort were readily undergone. Besides, that they who stayed to be sentenced forfeited their estates with their lives, and were debarred their rights of burial. Of such, on the contrary, as anticipated condemnation, the bodies were interred, and their wills remained in force. The mode of this, and price of dispatch. Tiberius, however, in a letter to the Senate, argued, that it was the usage of our ancestors, when they would renounce friendship, to forbid the person obnoxious their house, and by it shut up all intercourse, a usage repeated by himself towards Labeo. Whereas Labeo, who was charged with male administration and other crimes, had now, by leaving upon the prince the odium of his death, sought a veil to his own guilt, and thence falsely terrified his wife, to whom, however criminal, no punishment was meant. Mamercus Scaurus was thereafter questioned afresh, a man of signal quality, a noble orator, but profligate liver. In his overthrow the friendship of Sejanus had no share, but an engine no less potent to destroy, the enmity of Macro, who pursued, but with more subtlety, the same depraved politics. He was furnished with a handle from a tragedy composed by Scaurus, in which were some lines capable of being pointed against Tiberius. But the accusers, Servilius and Cornelius, the crimes objected were those of adultery with Livia and the mysteries of magic. Scaurus, as became the magnanimity of the ancient Emili, prevented condemnation by the persuasion of Sextia his wife, who animated him to die, and died with him. And yet the accusers, when opportunity occurred, were surrendered to vengeance, as were this same Servilius and Cornelius. Men become famous by the doom of Scaurus. But for accepting from various Ligor a bribe to drop prosecution, they were interdicted fire and water, and exiled into different lands. Abudius Rufo, too, once Adiel, whilst he brought a charge against Lentulus Catulicus, under whom he had led a legion, that he had espoused his daughter to marry a son of Sejanus, was himself condemned and banished Rome. Catulicus was, at this time, commander of the legions in Upper Germany, and by them wonderfully beloved, for his unbounded clemency and his discipline void of rigor. Neither was he unacceptable to the neighboring army, through his interest in Lucius Apronius, his father-in-law. Hence he was universally believed to have, by a letter, represented to the emperor, that by no choice of his own had he joined affinity with Sejanus, but in compliance with the counsel of Tiberius, and was as liable as Tiberius to be deceived. Nor ought one and the same error to pass unblamed in the prince only, and upon all others draw down deadly vengeance. For his own faith it was pure and inviolate, and if against him no plots were framed, would continue unshaken." A successor he would receive as no other than the herald of death. It remained, therefore, that between them two they should, as it were, establish a league, by which the prince should still enjoy all the rest of the empire, and he himself always retain his province. This proceeding, however amazing, derived credit from hence, that he only, of all that were allied to Sejanus, remained in safety, and even in high favor. Tiberius, indeed, considered himself under the pressure of public hatred, under the weight of extreme age, and that more by reputation than force his authority was upheld. End of Book Six, Part Two Recording by Kalinda in Raymond, New Hampshire, on February twentieth, two 2008